0: this podcast is brought to you by bruner communications your best resource for public speaking presentation and storytelling skills visit lizbruner.com and take your skills to the next
1: level hello everyone thanks for tuning in to live your best life with liz bruner i'm liz and my goal with each episode is to share stories of people who are recreating their lives or rising above challenges to write their next chapters with authenticity. These stories give me the courage to go after living my best life, and I think they will do that for you too. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to the show, so this podcast can continue to inspire next chapters all over the world. If you've ever asked yourself, is it too late to switch careers? You are not alone. And whether you're in your 30s or beyond, my guest today says the answer to that question is never, it's never too late. Susie Welch is enjoying many career chapters from reporter to bestselling author to television commentator to professor at New York University's Stern School of Business, where she teaches a methodology on how to discover your authentic career and life. Susie, it's so great to have you on my podcast today. Thanks so much for making time for us. I am so happy to be with you. In your weekly newsletter, Hey Susie on LinkedIn, where people can ask you almost anything, the question recently was this, is it too late to switch careers? And you and I both agree, never. And you wrote that you were not here to tell people that it's, quote, philosophically okay to change careers, but rather you have no choice. Why no choice? I love this question, don't you? Because we all
0: have it at some point. We all are asking, I call it the fireman veterinarian problem, that somewhere in our life we are thinking, I'd like to be a fireman or maybe a veterinarian, where in fact, you know, (laughs) you're sort of a teacher, right? And you think there's so many possible lives for yourself. You don't want to not live one of those lives. So we need to keep dreaming and dreaming is part of our life. And we don't need to edit our dreams because the world will edit our dreams for us. So why would we go ahead and do the world's work for us? That's going to happen. (laughs) But I also think that, frankly, I mean, just to be very realistic about it, the world is changing extremely rapidly. The economy is changing extremely rapidly. And careers, as a result, are changing very rapidly. And you may have no choice because a lot of jobs are going to not exist or they're going to morph so significantly that you're going to want to pivot away from them. Uh, We all kind of need to be perpetual seekers. Mm. Um, And that sits really well with some people and it doesn't sit well with other people. I mean, every person exists on a spectrum of comfort with change. I get that. And so I think that my message about constantly evaluating your career and calibrating it is kind of received with excitement by some people (laughs) and with fear and loathing by others. And I I totally respect that.
1: How do you know, though, when maybe it is the right time to quit or to make that change? I know it's probably different for everybody, but what advice would you give someone?
0: I could say there's a couple of ways you know it's time to quit and you hate Mondays. Uh, You are looking forward to Friday. When people ask you what you do, you're very blase about it. There are so many signals that it's time to quit, that they're sort of hard to miss. Whether it's time to pivot that You have to be pretty savvy because you have to see, in many cases, the smoke signals about what's coming in terms of what's coming with the economy. I was talking with somebody the other day, and they were saying, well, my job is never going to be replaced because who could do X, Y, and Z? And I said, well, I think that we're all going to be surprised about what AI can do.
1: One of the courses that you're teaching at NYU's Stern School of Business is called Becoming You, How to Craft the Authentic Life You Want and Need. Now, Susie, this does not sound like your typical MBA class, and you even have said that you wish you had this class when you were at Harvard Business School. So what is this class all about? I went through the
0: pandemic uh, like everyone else in the forest, and but I was actually literally in the woods because I had lost my husband in March 2020, and I knew I wanted to take some, and I had to take some time off to kind of regroup after that. Then the pandemic was hitting at the same exact time. And then as we all started to emerge, um, the first thing that happened was I went back to working for CNBC and also on The Today Show with Hoda and Jenna. You know, it wasn't exactly what I wanted to keep doing. So I had a friend at the time who was teaching at Stern, and I thought, well, maybe that's what I should do. I went to go see the dean of NYU's business school. He asked me, do you want to teach strategy? Do you want to teach leadership? These are all subjects that I've written extensively about. And I said, no, actually, I've done some research and you don't have the class uh, that I would like to teach. And it's the class that I wish I had taken when I was in business school. And it's the class that helps you to figure out what you should do with your possible lives. What should you do when you can do a lot of things? I mean, some people are just born to do one thing or they really only have one skill or they have other constraints that might be about their lives or about their personalities. Maybe they have anxiety. Maybe they have children. Maybe there's something that really makes it so they can only do one thing or children who give you anxiety. these young students, they have a lot of possible lives and that can be somewhat paralyzing. And so what happens for a lot of young people who are bright and shiny is that when they have this very good education and a lot of options that they don't know what to do with, they get onto this conveyor belt that takes them into consulting and banking. And that's a very nice conveyor belt because it puts you right into a very high paying job, but it may be one that you never wanted or one that you Mm. are only taking because it's so expedient to graduate into a high-paying job that's sort of custom-made for an MBA. And then they wake up when they're 40 and they say, uh, like the David Byrne song, what is this beautiful life? Who is this beautiful wife? What is this beautiful house? My God, what have I done? Based on a lot of the stuff that I had written about, mainly when I was uh, writing for Oprah and then other work that I had done with my husband, I thought I had a way to help people through this with a methodology, a kind of analysis. So I said to the dean, I'd like to teach that class. And he reminded me that that class did not exist. And he said to me, you're going to have to write it. And I said, yes, I'm, I'm going to try. If you I'm well aware. <laughs> I went back and I wrote it. And then I started to teach it. And we were off to the races because if you teach a class called Becoming You to a bunch of people in their 20s, that's a kind of if you build it, they will come moment. And it, and I loved it. And, and the students really got a lot out of it, it turned out. That's how it started. And that's how it's going. And But actually, one of the great pleasures of it is I'm going to start in September teaching it officially to the executive MBAs, which are people in their 30s and 40s. And I'm actually um, working with a corporate client to teach it to people in their 60s, also in the fall. So the material and the process are good for any age. So that's exciting to me.
1: It is exciting. And I know one of the pieces of that program, which I found really intriguing, was you've created the three R's to career change. And I think this is applicable to every decade. It's reskilling, resilience, and redefine. Give me a little nugget on each one.
0: The methodology says that if you get this feeling that you want to change your life or, or you wonder where you should be actually spending your waking hours, I call this piece of real estate your area of destiny. And your area of destiny exists at the intersection of your very authentic values, your accentuated inborn skills and competencies, and then the areas of the economy that call you both intellectually and emotionally. And there's a journey to get there. Nobody starts in their area of destiny. But I spend many, many classes with my students, helping them identify their authentic values. We do actual assessment testing on their inborn skills and competencies. And then we bring in experts to talk to them about the areas of the economy that are growing that might call them intellectually and emotionally. So the three R's are actually part of that last sphere because... None of us know where the economy is going, even the experts who I bring in who are <laughs> armed with data to the gills. Because when I first taught this class, we didn't even talk about AI. Okay, then suddenly that's all we talked about. The three R's are sort of three rules of thumb for just being ready for whatever economy actually comes, and so. The way I like to think about it, it's the first R is relationships. And that R is about making sure that you are constantly, I don't like networking. I, I don't believe in networking. Don't ask me about it because I'll go off in a complete <laughs> raving tangent. I actually think that we should just make friends with people. Yes. Uh, networking is too mercenary for me, but making friends with people even in your space, but also outside of your space and and nurturing and maintaining those friendships. And because when the economy changes, it's not going to be the people in your own area that you're going to be calling. So the nurturing and Tending to and the making of what I often refer to as irregular relationships—not the easy ones, but the harder ones. Okay, so that's one of the R's of being ready for the next economy. The second one is constant reskilling, and this is you know sort of always looking ahead and saying, "What are the skills that are coming that I I really need?" And this is hard because everyone can say, "Yeah, reskill." Nobody likes to do it. I mean, I don't know. Last time I reskilled, actually, I can remember the last time I reskilled because a woman who works with me told me that I couldn't use Canva, that Canva was too complicated for me. And I said, literally said, gosh, darn it, I'm teaching myself Canva. And I did. <laughs> so, and now I love it. Uh, and then the last art is resilience, because what we really need in an ever-changing economy is resilience. Mm-hmm. But resilience to me is something a little different than how it's usually defined, because it's usually defined as grit. OK, grit and perseverance are the typical definitions of resilience. And I've had to have resilience in my life because I've been knocked down a few times and who hasn't? People often say to me, "Um, you're so strong. And I think, well, I don't think I'm that strong. I I know my tender center. I know how much I cry and so forth. But I think that the thing that's helped me the most is not my grit, although I know I have grit. It's forgiveness. Forgiveness of yourself for screwing up. At a certain point, I say, okay, I really made a mistake. It was part of the wisdom project. And so I like resilience defined as grit plus forgiveness, Mm resilience is not just getting up when you've fallen down. It's getting up and giving yourself amnesty to go on.
1: One of the things that you wrote about in an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal recently was titled Generation Z Yearns for Stability. And you went on to write that burnout wasn't an option. Self-care is what you did when you retired. I'm curious, what are you learning from Generation Z?
0: so much. Um, So I teach Gen Z. I teach Gen Z. I mean, I didn't set out to say, oh, I'd like to learn more about them because I was perfectly happy in my, you know, (laughs) in my friend group, although I like to have friends of all ages. Who doesn't? And I actually kind of, I'm sure like you, I just don't like it when people say kids these days or when they write off whole groups of people. And I heard a lot of writing off of Gen Z. So I went in sort of saying, what's all this racket about it? And I was open, I hope, I believe I was open-minded and open-hearted about learning. I'm perplexed, like and baffled by some things they say. <laughs> so that op-ed piece that you referred to from the journal was about a, a pretty large study done about what Gen Z was looking for in their next job. And it compared to longitudinal data that showed that previous generations were looking for Compensation, adventure in many years, number one or number two was the ability to accelerate and grow in the job. Mm-hmm. And for uh, the overwhelming data showed that Gen Z wanted stability. They wanted visibility into the future, which very sadly, none of us get anymore. Not Gen Z and not the boomers. Visibility is dead, it's over. And, you know, Liz, you're younger than I am, but we both grew up with visibility. <laughs> we didn't know how lucky we were. I remember when I was working at Bain we literally did 5-year plans. Yes. We did 5-year projections for, for our clients, 5 years. Yeah. <laughs> it's laughable now. Like you wouldn't We didn't show even do what we're client. doing in 5 months, right? <laughs> you wouldn't show a client beyond 6 months now. Right. And even then you're sort of sitting there saying, "God, I hope this happens." This is what that piece was about and and so I had actually in that piece reflected that when I was talking to Gen Z, they expressed to me often concern about career burnout and often asked me questions about self-care. And, you know, I had to just sort of take a beat because even though, I worked nonstop and as I often tell my students, I mean, my first two, three years at work, I don't think I ever took a weekend. I'm sure you were like this. We were Mm. young journalists. I never took a day off. Mm. I slept with the the police radio next to my bed (laughs) and I would have no problem getting up at four in the morning and I'd go home at two in the morning and I just worked nonstop. And I think burnout was just not even a term. Right. And I never worried about it. And then in terms of self-care, it's like, I just still don't get self-care. And I actually was giving a speech to a group of business school students in the Midwest and they asked me about self-care and I didn't have an answer. I said, get a dog. And uh, (laughs) they just stared at me blankly. I said, look, I I think that might be my self-care.
1: I know that you went to Harvard, Radcliffe, Harvard Business School, graduated in the top 5% of your class, but your first career path, you touched on it a moment ago, you were a crime reporter for the Miami Herald and the Associated Press. And your bio says you started writing at nine years old in your diary. Where did this passion for writing and journalism come from? Who knows?
0: (laughs) God, some things are born into you, right? I mean, I just loved to write. It's how I express myself. I don't know. I mean, I did have a diary named Vinny. It's embarrassing. (laughs) I still have it. It's cringy beyond comprehension. Dear Vinny, today I shall tell you about what Mrs. Sibeli said in English class. I mean, just uh, where, what what was I thinking? I don't know.
1: But aren't you glad you have that? I mean, come on. Aren't you glad you still have that to go back and look at it? I think it's great. You know, actually,
0: there's one really touching entry in it where it says, Dear Vinny, war is over. And it must have been the day that the Vietnam War ended. Oh, wow. And uh, even though I was a little girl, I, it was all in big capital letters with exclamation points. And I, that touches me. I, so I actually have a daughter who's a writer and I see it in her also. But anyway, that, the way I became a journalist was that I went to college and I worked at the daily newspaper at Harvard called The Crimson. And then I didn't know what else I would do. I mean, I loved writing. I thought, oh, I can go be paid to write. I didn't have any money to my name. And I thought I could be paid. Uh, You do that when you're a journalist. Mm. Like the other people at the Crimson, I looked at all the available jobs for journalists when we were graduating. And I found a job at the Miami Herald.
1: But after that, you ended up going, like many MBA students, to one of the big three. You went to Bain & Company. You were there for, I think, something like seven years doing consulting. And then you were named editor-in-chief of the Harvard Business Review. You spent a pretty good chunk of your career writing and editing for this very premier leadership publication. And as a leader yourself, you have said that being a leader is about one thing, wanting to see other people succeed. I love that quote. So special.
0: Jack taught me that. When I met Jack, I was running HBR and I had a, uh, it was a $100 million business. To me, I thought it was a significant business, $100 million. And I remember him saying to me, $100 million, that's a popcorn stand, you know, because he was running a $30 billion business at the time. Jack immediately identified me as not being a, a good manager. Here's what he saw HBR was a nonprofit, uh, it was part of Harvard Business School. And I had employees who I thought did incredibly good work. I didn't have bonuses to give them mm-hmm. um, because it's just not how the organization worked. And so I gave them bonuses out of my own bonus. Mm. He loved that I wanted to give them big bonuses, but he thought that it's it's not a good idea to be sort of taking your own personal money and doing something that the organization should have been. I should. He wanted me to go back and say, look, you've got to come up with some money for these individuals. They're fantastic at what they do. And instead, I just sort of sat in the corner and felt sad that the organization didn't want to give them money. And I thought, fine, I'll write them personal checks. And he was right. This is not managerially a correct way to do it. I I was eventually given a leadership coach and later with his guidance and with more experience, I became a more deliberate and thoughtful manager and learned my way around being a leader. But that's a very, very, Huge responsibility, sort of second for me, at least second to having children, was that learning how to run an organization and be a leader. That was
1: pretty hard. You've mentioned Jack's name a couple times, and I want to share with our listeners for who may not know who you're referring to. Your late husband is Jack Welch. He was an iconic leader who was the chairman and CEO of General Electric for 20 years and during his tenure rose the value of the company by 4,000%. And like you, he had another wonderful quote of, before you are a leader, success is about growing yourself when you become a leader, success is about growing others. And I share that with clients all the time when I'm leading leadership workshops. Now, he called this trait the generosity gene, to which you said you took a little issue with him on that. Why?
0: (laughs) A a gene is something you're born with. But Mm. I thought that actually, this trait could be taught. Yes. So you could actually... Have somebody who you had promoted to manager, and you could notice they didn't actually have this trait, and you could talk to them about developing it, and you could encourage them to develop it. And I'd actually seen people develop it. His argument was look, 90% of the time, somebody has a generous heart or they don't, and you can't change someone's heart. We were both right to a certain degree.
1: Well, you mentioned that you and Jack did write a number of columns and books together, which are fantastic. And I know the proceeds from a lot of those books are donated to scholarships for low-income students, which is wonderful. I had to laugh, though, when I read a blurb on your website about when you were writing your book, 10 10 A Life-Transforming Idea, which, by the way, became a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller. Jack was cheering you on in the next room while also asking where dinner was. <laughs> it's so true. What was your partnership like? <sighs>
0: It was great. You know, he was my husband and my best friend, but also at certain points in our life, my boss. You know, we were writing together, but I was doing the writing and he had a lot of the concepts, although that would he never wrote. But sometimes I would have a concept. Um, It was our partnership was our life. I mean, it was so exciting. We were together every minute of every day. Mm -hmm. Um, We traveled the world together. We raised the children together. But we also liked to play. We we golfed and we did a lot of fun things. It was fun and it was intense. But like all partnerships, you know, it wasn't without its moments where you were just <laughs> like literally when I was writing 10 to 10 10, he did simultaneously say to me, this is so great. I'm so glad you're writing your own book that nothing could be better. And then he would literally say something like, hey, can you take a break? Let's go play nine. And I would say, well, which is it? Do you want me to write the book or play nine? Our oldest son was applying to college at the same time as I was writing it. And I was, of course, like any mom, helping him apply to college. And I remember one day it just was too hard. And uh, after everybody was asleep, I said, I have something I really need to discuss with you. Okay, we put aside some time. And I said, I think I'm going to stop writing the book. I think this is just a bridge too far in our lives right now. There's just, I can't take it. I'm at my wit's end. I just, I can't. And he said, "Eh, not an option, not an option. You're finishing this book. And he kind of knew me well enough to understand that I needed that. Mm. I needed somebody to say not an option. I need someone to to sort of snap me out of it. He said to me later, I did it for you. I understood you had to finish that book. And he wanted me to have my own identity. And so, uh, but I I was ready to give up. And he just said to me, I I won't abide it. And he did kind of ease off on the demand of my time around that time. For a few days,
1: (laughs) for a few days. (laughs) But what I love about that is that that's really partnership. It's like, you know, there was a once a story I read about an Indian totem pole where, you know, when one person is up, the other person can be down and then lift the other person up and vice versa. And in your partnership, it sounds like, yes, he was there to support you. And he believed in you just as much as you believed in him, which I think is so special. So you're this professor now at NYU Stern School of Business. You're the teacher, if you will. What have your students taught
0: you? Oh, so much. Um, and actually, I want to just say besides becoming you, because I'm in the middle of writing right now, I also do teach a class called Managerial Skills, yes. which is how to how to be a boss. And so all the lessons I've learned over the years, for better or for worse, about how to be a manager, I'm also teaching um, that. and I'm really looking forward to teaching that starting in September. My students have taught me a lot about where Gen Z is coming from, and I learn every day more, understanding where their values and beliefs and assumptions come from. For instance, uh, I think one of the hardest things I have to wrap my mind around, but is their understanding, their belief that no matter how hard they work, they may never have financial security. I came from a very modest family, and but I actually grew up with the belief that if I worked really hard and kept my eye on the prize, that I would have financial security. It was a belief. And and in the hard times, that belief keeps you going. And Mm -hmm. we have a generation where there are many members who feel like I could work incredibly hard and there are no guarantees. So why work hard? Why not smell the roses along the way? (laughs) Why not take a couple of days off? Why not lean into the time between jobs? Why have loyalty to a company? And so I think that I have learned to understand where they're coming from. And sometimes I feel in a way that other people of my age are not listening to them and not hearing it. I've learned how um, common it is for people to edit their dreams. I've heard students say, well, what I really want is X, but it's really not feasible. So I'm going to do Y. And and I'm just saying, well, then who's going to do X? You know, somebody's got to do that. Why not you? It makes me sensitive to Mm -hmm. people just talking themselves out of the lives they want. Look, I have had many flaws and made many, many, many mistakes in my (laughs) life, but that's one thing I did not do. For some reason, I believed in my own dreams of myself. And so maybe that's on my parents. I don't know, or I was born with that or whatever, but I'm grateful for it. And I'd love to be able to urge people to
1: do that. I love that. Susie, you have accomplished so much and have so many career chapters. Currently, the senior advisor to the Brunswick Group, which is a CEO advisory firm. You're a regular contributor. You mentioned CNBC, The Today Show, O Magazine, Wall Street Journal. I could go on and on. And and you're also a frequent speaker. How does all of this fit into you living your best life? And what advice would you give others about living their best life?
0: Well, we're just works in progress, aren't we? I mean, I think that it's very interesting to be teaching a class called Becoming You while I am becoming myself. I mean, I have had to reinvent myself, Liz, because I had this long, beautiful partnership with Jack and then it came to an end and we knew that we were out of options and so we were able to have a year where we were able to speak to each other very lovingly about what my life would be like without him. You know, he wanted to talk about it more than I did because I just had trouble facing into it. But he was, he what he used to say to me is, you know, go get your life back. You know, we had this life together and go get your life back, Susie. And so that's what I'm kind of learning how to do. And I think we do it, we iterate, we we see what works for us, what feels authentic. The journey of our, our life is long, but it arcs towards authenticity. And so I think that we are on this journey to sort of live ever more authentic lives if we can. Look, sometimes you just can't because there are constraints, as I said, and I don't want to be too Pollyanna-ish about this. Sometimes there are difficulties with your children or financial security or a partner that makes somebody talking about being your authentic self be very annoying. I don't want to be that person. I mean, it's a real privilege to be able to be your authentic self. Um, I get that. But if you can get closer and closer to it, it frees you up. It frees up a lot of emotional space that you can use to sort of emphasize your own joy, but the joy of the people around you.
1: Folks, if you want to learn more about Susie, and you can find all of her wonderful thoughts on leadership and authenticity and so much more, you can just go to her website, suzywelch.com. You'll also figure out how to subscribe to her LinkedIn newsletter. Hey, Susie, there's so much that's available to people. I really appreciate you, Suzy, taking time today to share with us your wisdom and even your wit. And for showing us that we can change course, and it's often a good thing to do so. Thank you so much. Liz, I love being
0: with you. You're one of my idols, and I think what you've done with your life is so amazing, and I look up to you so much, and so please keep doing what you're doing.
1: Thank you very, very much for saying that. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. May Susie inspire you to live your best life, go after it, and not be afraid to change course. Until next time, be well.